0: If you visit the grave of Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Rambam, or Maimonides, if you visit his grave in Israel, you'll see on his tombstone the following inscription, Mimosha Moshe ad Moshe lokam ke from Moses until Moses, no one has arisen like Moses. As if to say, from the times of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, the giver of the law, to Moses Maimonides, there hasn't been anyone quite as impactful as Rambam. Now, I'm not sure if this is exactly true, but in this episode, we're going to look at the life and times of Rambam. What were his impacts? What was his legacy? Why is it that people can argue, Mimosha Ad moshe lo kam Kemoshe? As always, please like and share this episode, and if you have any questions, please leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nahum Mef. Who was Rambam? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's talk about Rambam today. Uh, Rambam is really one of the central figures in Jewish history. Uh, we, we gave a class at one of our the brunch and learns not so long ago about who was Rashi. And I think it's safe to say from post-Talmudic times, um, certainly till, you know, through the Middle Ages, um, Rashi and Rambam are probably going to be your two most central figures in Jewish history. Rashi primarily serving the Ashkenazic Jewish world, Rambam primarily serving the Sephardic Jewish world. But that's an oversimplification because there was a ton of crossover and both of their legacies, both of their impacts were felt in, in both the Sephardic and Ashkenazic worlds. What we're going to do in uh, this morning is... We're going to break things down into three or four segments. We're going to first go with a a brief biography of what we know about Rambam's life. We're then going to take a look at some of the letters that he wrote, which are absolutely fascinating. And we'll read them together and, and learn a little bit about Rambam, who he was, and what were some of the issues that he dealt with. We're then going to talk about, in section three, we're going to talk about his primary works, what they were, what they looked like, what were their functions... And time permitting, we'll then talk about the aftermath, kind of what happened after Rambam, you know, passed away and the immediate aftermath of Rambam, which was somewhat controversial and complicated. I'll have you guys out of here by 4 p.m. No problem. No, I'm just joking. It'll be good. Okay. When you talk about anyone in history, you have to know, you know, where are your sources from? And particularly when you talk about someone like Rambam, Rabbi Moshe, Ramb, but just so we are all talking about the same thing, Rambam is an acronym for Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Rambam. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, if we use the Greek suffix, aides, to, uh, in, which means son of, that's why he gets the name Maimonides, all right? That's, that's the same guy, same guy, Rabbi Moshe Maimonides, Rambam. How do we know anything about him? How do you know anything about anyone historically? So, especially when you're talking about someone who lived 900 years ago, um, you, you have to question what are your sources? There are plenty of legends and stories and myths which oftentimes are not particularly helpful because we, how do you corroborate them? So. Uh, really one of the best sources there are going to be three major sources um, number one are we have some external accounts from various places, number two are from his primary works that he wrote um, as well as primary works that other people wrote about Rambam and what I think is the most helpful thing when we talk about Rambam is this book right here, These are called, this is called Igros ha Rambam, the letters of Rambam Rambam wrote many letters and sort of like short essays that were disseminated. Um, There have been many publications of gathering all these letters and putting putting them together in one book. Some of these books are not particularly good. This is the best one. This was put together by a fellow named uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Shilat, who lives in Israel. I think he's still alive today. He is a genius and an expert historian, and I believe he's a pretty... Um, successful. I, I, he's a good guy. He's one of the good guys. And he did a lot of work. He's actually, um, one of the things we're going to co- encounter is Rambam wrote primarily in Arabic. Arabic. Rambam is living in Arabic countries. Most of his letters were written in Arabic, so you have to wonder about the translations. So Shalat actually Publishes the original Arabic and then his translation, which is pretty good. So we know a lot about Rambam from this from this collection and anthology of his letters. What's just fascinating? I'm going to fast forward. I'm, gonna, I'm a little all over the place here, just for a second. But it's just fascinating. Give me one second. Well, I'll get to your question. Rambam lived. We're going to see in a moment. Lived in Egypt um, for a good chunk of his life. One of the great, probably the second or third most important historical documentary discovery um, in Jewish history. You know, we know the Dead Sea Scrolls, but probably equally as significant or maybe even more significant were the findings in the Cairo Geniza. Cairo Geniza, which the Geniza is, there's an ancient Jewish tradition, sacred works, we don't just throw, out, throw them out. If you have an old work of Torah publication, you don't just throw it in the garbage, but it's called, you put it in a Geniza. Geniza literally means to bury it. And in Cairo, what they had, there was a synagogue in Cairo that goes back a millennia. And the way, the, the way they did use their Geniza, their Geniza system was, they had their shul, it's a small little shul, and there was a, a room, There was a room that was completely walled in. There was no real door to get into the room. All there was is imagine you have a wall and there was a hole on top of the wall. And people would just throw all their Geniza items over the wall into this big empty room for a millennia. And then in the late 1800s, Solomon Schechter... It was, he wasn't one of the original discoverers, but this, someone bumped into this Geniza and like, this is incredible. This is like, it's literally archaeology. You just go through the letters and you can find little kids practicing their... They used to throw everything in the Geniza. You could see little kids practicing their Hebrew. There are bills of sale. You have divorces, you, documents, you have wedding documents, you have anything under the... There are lo, literally shopping lists that were uncovered in the Cairo Geniza and it's it's an incredible thing. In the Cairo Geniza, we actually have actual handwritten letters written by the Rambam, by Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon himself. Where you can you we have Rambam's autograph. Now that's a cool baseball we card. Have some of the documents. Absolutely. Sure. Where are they now? Uh, in Oxford primarily it's in three major places Oxford Shrine of the Book in Israel and a couple other places I was at one point on the there was some Cairo Geniza newsletter that got sent out every month but it was getting too annoying so I I unsubscribed from that but okay so what do we know about Ramam let's go through a brief history he was born in the year 1135 maybe 1138 it's not so easy to figure out in Cordova where's Cordova it's on the southern part it's in Spain Keep in mind, back then, countries weren't really countries. You had primarily city-states. Different regions kind of acted independently. Spain at the time were controlled primarily by Muslims. A little bit of Jewish history, the Spanish Jewry, from roughly the year 700 till the eventual tragic expulsion in 1492, um, was an incredible little bubble of Jewish history, where really for the first half of it, for I'll say the year roughly speaking 700 to about the year 1200 really throughout the year 1150 which was under Muslim rule and Jews rose to incredible prominence people like to connect similar to how we thank God please God should stay this way in the United States in 2020 have religious freedom there's religious tolerance we're able to practice our religion and be pretty comfortable about it people like to say well that's kind of what things were like back in the golden age of, Jewish, uh, of Spanish Jewry, between the year 700 and let's say the year 1150 ballpark, and, and there's a certain connection. It's not really accurate. It's true that Jews rose to prominence. Most famously, there was Rabbi Shmuel Hanagid, Rabbi Shmuel the prince, the leader, who was uh, you know, in the 900s. He, uh, he basically effectively became the secretary of defense under the king. Um, and he was a scholar, not just a, a small scholar, but if you actually look in the first volume of any edition of, of the Talmud, you're going to read the introduction, the Mavoha Talmud, the introduction of the Talmud, written by Rabbi Shmuel HaNagid. This was, imagine like, the Secretary of Defense right now is like you know, Rabbi Davidowitz. Like, that would be pretty good, like a Torah scholar, right? And he's also, he was a general, it was, it was a remarkable time. That said, it's important to understand when you talk about when the Jews flourished under Arabic rule, and they did, even post-1492. For the most part, the Sephardic Jewish experience was not nearly as bad as the Ashkenazic Jewish experience. And there's one reason for that. It's one word. It's an Arabic word. It's Dhimmi is an Arabic or Islamic concept um, that was actually instituted, I think, even by Muhammad, if not by Muhammad, then the next guy after him, the next pope after Muhammad, whoever he was, I, 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 whatever his name was. Um, Dhimmi is a principle whereby Jews and other, some other minorities are tolerated, are allowed to flourish to some extent in Arabic and Islamic countries under the rule of, of Dimi. Dimmi means you are certified as a second-class citizen. So long that you understood that you were a second-class citizen, you were given many, many rights and privileges. But it was very clear, you were a second-class citizen. As a Jew, if you were walking on the street, and there was an, an Islam fellow walking, you had to yield and give him the right of way. You weren't allowed to wear certain colors. The synagogues, if you ever go to an old Sephardic synagogue in in Islamic countries, they are very, very, very simple. That was part of Dimi. They had to be very simple. They couldn't be taller than the local um, uh, mosque or things like that. There are a lot of rules. Jews were able and were tolerated and, generally speaking, were not persecuted so long as they understood their place. And that worked for a millennia. A comment in Cordova. actually in Spain a lot of the synagogues were actually built by the yeah, now a lot changed in Spain. And the Dimi system worked from let's say the year seven hundred to eleven fifty. But beginning really shortly after the birth of Rambam, while Rambam was still yet a child, the Almal, the Al-Mal- I can never pronounce it, Al Malohads, which were a, Burbish, a, a a tribe of Berber Islamic Fanatics uh, took over Cordova, and they did away with Dimi, and that wasn't good for the Jews because, you know, many of us be like, "Oh, second class citizens." That sounds horrible. That was actually great, and that's why the Sfaradic Jewish community were typically not persecuted, whereas the Ashkenazic Jewish communities were slaughtered and and you know had to deal with holocausts and things of the like in 1648, the terrible decrees of 1648, Spartak Jewry typically didn't have to worry about these things. They were second-class citizens, and most Spartac Jews were fine with that because it meant they were able to live, they were able to practice their religion, and it was what it was. The Amalohads came to power in the le- around the year 1150, and they did away with Dimi, and they began persecuting the Jews. And um, they basically... The the golden age of Spain really began to crumble in the year 1150. Now, eventually, the Christians would take over, but that's not for another 100 or 200 years. The Christians would take over, and eventually, Spanish Jewry would be destroyed in 1492. Rambam's dad, Rabbi Rabbi Maimon, flees Cordova. It's not so clear how old Rambam was, he's probably a teenager and they flee to Fez which is a city in Morocco in northern Morocco they live there for a couple of years eventually they go Rambam f- finds himself in Israel for less than a year and it seems that he left there presumably because he couldn't find a job and he ends up in Egypt in his mid 20s um he gets married a little late in life for that time he's around 30 when he gets married um He has one daughter who he writes about who dies while she's young. And I'm going to read from that letter, time permitting, in a little bit. It's a fascinating letter. And he has another son who's famously the Rabbi Avram ben Harambam. Rabbi Abraham, the son of the Rambam, who is a prolific and influential person. Rambam lives in Egypt after Israel. He moves to Egypt to the city of Fustat. There are two major Jewish communities in Egypt, Alexandria and Fustat. Fustat today is kind of like a suburb or it's a district in Cairo. Rambam writes that it's about two miles away from Cairo, which was the capital city. And Fustat was a, was a major Jewish community for, for a millennia. Again, Jews lived in Fustat till the 1950s, uh, until the, you know, the Jews were kicked out of Egypt. Rambam is a scholar, is a rabbi for most of his life. Wasn't he a doctor? Hold on to that. We're going to get to that in a second. He was supported primarily by his brother, Rabbi David, who was a merchant um, and which supported both his own family as well as Rambam's family. And it's during this time Rambam is able to be that prolific author and influential person that he was. Tragically, and we're going to read about it again, time permitting, in one of the letters, Rabbi, Rabbi David dies at sea. He drowns on one, of his, um, on one of his business trips. Back then travel was very difficult and was very, very, very risky and he was traveling to India to sell something or other, and he drowned at sea, and that uh, was devastating for Rambam. And it's at that point Rambam needed a job, and that's when he becomes a a doctor. He, um, by the way, just a quick note on, we're gonna get back to him as a doctor, but one thing I could tell you. We have any physicians in the room? Physicians? Oh, Larry. Oh, another physician. So you may have heard, and some people will tell you, you right when you become a physician, you take the Hippocratic oath. So Jews will be, no, I'm not going to take the Hippocratic oath. You take the oath of the Rambam, and many people apparently there's this oath, but it's not the Hippocratic oath; it's the oath of the Rambam. You'll also have the prayer of the Rambam, the physicians' prayer of the Rambam. Sorry to break it to you, those were not neither of those were composed by the Rambam. And so I don't know where that's coming. It doesn't make it onto the scene into the 1790s. That was, it. almost every scholar agrees that those were not, they're beautiful prayers. They're wonderful. And if you want to have them framed and hanging in your office, that's great. But it's probably a misattribution. It's it's not Rambam who composed that. Rambam dies in the year 1204. And his will, he asked to be buried in Israel. It's a matter of dispute. Most scholars believe. If you go today to Tiberius, there's a very—it's a beautiful monument. I was just there last two summers ago with my son Akiva to the Rambam's tomb. You can visit it there. It's pretty remarkable and beautifully well done. As everything in Judaism, there's a matter of dispute. Is that actually the Rambam's tomb? There are those in Egypt who say, no, he never was exhumed and reinterred in Israel. And his tomb is located in some grave somewhere in in Egypt. That's the basic biographical sketch of Rambam's life. Okay? Everyone with me so far? Everyone love Rambam still? Good. Okay. I want to take a moment just so you can... To take it a little deeper, to try to get a sense, you can almost, what's beautiful about Rambam is if you read his letters, it's, it, it's like a different world when you talk about a subject or a person or a figure <coughs> in an abstract sense. But when you read actual letters that he wrote, and as you'll see in a moment, there's, there's deep emotion, there's conflict, there's personal tragedy, there's personal struggle, there's personal triumph, he becomes a real person. And uh, I I found that inspiring. I I want to give credit where credit is due. One of my rabbis are by Aaron Lopiansky. He's a rabbi (coughs) in Maryland. So I was listening to one of his classes, and he was talking about the Rambam, and he he flagged a couple of the letters. This book contains about 100 to 200 letters, so he flagged a couple of them. So I'm going to share. That's where I, I decided which ones to share, mainly from his suggestions, some really, really beautiful ideas. Can question I ask, is that written in english? no <laughs> i don't think so i'll no. bet you you can probably if you google it online i'll bet you safaria has started working uh, on translations some of these have been translated so for example we're going to talk about Igeres Teman, Igeres Shmad. some of the bigger essays have been translated into english but i think some, most of the smaller ones i i could be mistaken it could be they are but, uh, but Shalot's work is, is only in Hebrew. In other words, you might get the actual, a different tr- from a different manuscript or something like that in English, but Shalot's work, who has, he has incredible footnotes and background. He has, to each letter, he has a little intro- introduction that I think is only available in Hebrew. What did he write on? Was it Paris... What the, I'm sorry? Okay, what did he write on? Back then, I think they already had, not papyrus, they, they've moved way past that. They probably had parchment, and I'll bet you they are even getting close to paper by now. You're talking about the, the late 1100s, I think paper is being developed, but I don't know. Okay, again, the printing press is not available, it's not invented until the late 1400s, so with Gutenberg, so we, we still got time for that. So it's all handwritten. As I mentioned, the majority of his works and almost all of his letters are written in Arabic. They're written in Arabic. Interesting. They're not written in Arabic script or Arabic lettering. They're actually written in Hebrew letters transliterated into Arabic. Isn't that interesting? That I don't know. I guess that's what they used to do. The Jews used to do. The letters are written so. So, for example, I can read it. I'll, I'll just pick any, you know, a letter that was originally in the Hebrew. I'm sorry, in Arabic. Okay, I, uh, whatever. But you'll read it. He has them published in the original Arabic, and like I remember, once flipping through something, like I don't, I can't, I can't understand a single word here. Like, where's my Hebrew? And then I realized, no, this is Arabic. So most of his letters are written in Arabic, uh, but again, Shalot translated them. Um, so I'm going to read a, a couple of the letters to so get a flavor for who he was. <coughs> this is a letter, Igeres El Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Yefes Hadayan. Um, this is a letter written to Rabbi Yefes, the judge. Oh, this one—he he tells us this one is actually originally written in Hebrew. So these are the original words of of, um, of Rambam. The context of this letter: apparently, Rabbi Yefes and Rambam were old buddies in their youth, or you know, a long time before this letter was written. And Rabbi Yefes writes to Rambam, and Rambam writes them, "How come you? You know, what took you so long?" Yeah, he hadn't heard from him in decades, and it's interesting. You see that he's, like, sharp. He's, like, he's, he's offended, but apolog- he's offended that Rabbi Yefes doesn't write to him more often, but he's, he says, fine, let, let bygones be bygones, and let's just be buddies moving forward. It's just, like, something, like, small like that. You don't think of Rambam, you know, having, like, a personal issue. It's exactly what happens. But listen to what he writes. He talks about some of the big personal challenges that he had. He says the big uh, challenge, the ra, the evil thing that happened to me in the, the recently, rasha it's the worst thing that has ever happened to me since the day I was born till today. The greatest tragedy I had to deal with. He says, He says, Zatzal, the death of the righteous one. He's referring to his brother, Rabbi David. Shatava Bayam Hodu, who, who drowned in the Indian Ocean. Biyodo Mamam rav. He had a lot of wealth with him. Leave the lov I forgot to mention this. When Rabbi David would go on to commerce missions, he was actually investing Rambam's money. So when he sank, there was the personal tragedy, but then there was a financial tragedy as well. Rambam lost all his wealth, Rabbi David's wealth as well. Rabbi David sa- drowns, and he was very, very close with him, and now he has a widow and uh, a child that now Rambam has to take care of. It's been about a year since I heard about this. Listen to what he writes. He writes, I've been bedridden for a year with some kind of physical ail- ailments, but he writes, i Levav. Rambam, self, and who's a physician, writes that he was depressed and he couldn't get out of bed for a year. I'm just going to flag that for a second. Mental health doesn't just afflict crazy people. Rambam suffered from clinical depression. Self admits he suffered from clinical depression and he couldn't get out of bed for a year. He says, I was just a moment away from, from death. He was so despondent and so broken. From then till today, oh no, sorry, it's been eight years since that happened. He said he was bedridden for a year. I've been mourning, and I've found I found no solace. He says, How can I find any comfort? My brother was like a child that I raised on my knees. He was my brother, he was my student. He was the one who did business. He would support me. Rambam was a great prolific writer. How did he have time to be a great prolific writer? The answer is his brother supported him. The Haven but it said his brother was a Talmudic scholar. The Hayden he was very wise when it came to, to language. So his brother, it was again supported him, was an incredibly important figure in his life. And Rambam writes, when on the death of his brother, he sank into a depression for a year that nearly took his life. I found that to be absolutely remarkable and interesting. All right, okay. So that's one letter. Those are Arabic words that you're saying. No, this was Hebrew. This letter was actually written in Hebrew. Yeah, they sound pretty yeah, these were Hebrew. Yeah, these were the original Hebrew. Um, okay, let's read another letter. This is a cool one. This is a really cool one. This is also a letter that was written in, and I'm just peeking. This one was also written in Hebrew, so these are the original words. This is a letter. It's called Igeres Chuvos. These are a, a series of responsa, El Rebbe Avadia Hager. These were letters that were written to Rabbi Ovadia the Ger, the convert. Rabbi Ovadia apparently was a Muslim man who converts to Judaism. And he asks Rambam a bunch of questions related to conversion. Some practices of conversion about the prayers. Are there differentiations? If I'm a convert, do I pray using different language? It's a lot of technical questions. And then he writes, Rabbi Ovadia writes, this is remarkable, he adds some other question about the exact practice of while he was a Muslim, was Islamic tradition, was it considered idolatry or not, and this or that, whatever the nuance and technicalities of the question are, aren't so relevant. But he writes, this Rabbi Ovadia writes, that when he asked this question to his local rabbi, his local rabbi said, Anei kisil Ivalto." His rabbi wrote back of him, very wrote back to, to this Ovadya very dismissively by saying, "Answer the fool according to his foolishness," meaning he called Ovadya a fool. He said the question was a bad question. So Rambam first addresses the actual, the substance of the question, what the you know the technicalities, and he gives whatever answer, and then he writes the following. That which your rabbi wrote you back inappropriately, the attivchhan made you sad, the Korah Oscha Kassil, and he called you a fool, Avera veragidola It was a great sin. The hate god Chata, terrible transgression. He says shogegu. It must be, he says, it appears to me your rabbi, he must have been a Shogeg, which means it must have been inadvertent, careless. It would be appropriate this rabbi asks from you forgiveness. Even though you're the student, and maybe you would argue it's inappropriate for the rabbi to ask the student for forgiveness, he says, nonetheless, you should ask him. The rabbi should cry out, You should fast, You should pray. Maybe God will forgive him for the harsh words that he called you. Was your rabbi, was this rabbi drunk? That in 36 locations in the Torah, the Torah commands us to be sensitive to a convert? How did the rabbi ignore the word of God? And then he continues, This which he calls you a fool, it's a great wonder to me. A man who would leave the house of his father, um, his birthplace, and a kingdom, the Yadam HaNatuya, their kingdom, the, 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 again, the Islamic rule back then, they were on the upper hand. You left everything. The Haven be'en libo, and you saw in the eye of his heart, I guess in his... Mind's eye, vav and umazu, and you decided to come close to this nation in Shiyayom Misayev Guy Evan Moshelem. We're a despondent nation, we're downtrodden. The yada shadasso das ms, and you recognize that Judaism is correct, Sadak and righteous. The Darka Israel, and you've recognized the ways of Israel. The yada shakala dasos gnuvos and you recognize that all religions are stolen from our religion. Zem most of these guys they add, they subtract, and he says. The, and you left all of that to join the downtrodden nation because you recognize the truth and he goes on and on to praise how wonderful it is this fellow is a convert and uh, you know he should take great pride. it's just interesting like his, his sensitivity to the personal element of it I found that to be um, fascinating what was that? I said it is there you go okay There is another famous letter that's often quoted um, where Rambam, as we mentioned, he becomes a physician, and there's a famous letter that's, I can find, here it is, that he writes um, discussing what his medical practice looked like. Let's see, is this written in Hebrew? Yeah, this is originally written, written in Arabic. So you read it like you can't read a word. So this is a translation. Interesting, the following translation was not a translation that was written by, that was authored by Shelot. The translation we're about to read was actually written by the recipient of the letter. This was a letter that was written by Rambam to a rabbi named Rabbi Yehuda ibn Tibbon. Now you may have heard of or Ibn Tibbon. Tib- Ibn, Ibn Tibbon was was a translator. He was actually the one. Many of Rambam's works were actually written in Arabic. Some of his primary works, which we're going to discuss in just a moment, Ibn Tibbon actually translated some of the most famous and well-known works, the Morah Nevuchim, which we're going to talk about in a moment, Guide for the Perplexed, and his his Pirush is Rambam's. Uh, commentary on the Mishnah which two of his three most significant works were actually written in Arabic the versions that we have and have been studying for the last 900 years are translations that were translated by this Rabbi Ibn Tibin in Rambam's lifetime so these were approved by the author and I'm actually going to read for a moment a letter that Rabbi Maimonides that that Rambam writes to this Rabbi Ibn Tibbin, who Ibn Tibbon then translates that's what we're going to read from Ibn Tibbon's translation Rambam ends up, we know, becomes a physician. Listen to what his life looked like as a. Uh, and and Ibn, the, the context is, Ibn Tibbon writes a letter to Rambam, I want to go visit you. Can we go visit? Well, Shmuz will do a cup of coffee. So listen to what Rambam writes back. Ani shokhen I live in Egypt. Omei and the king lives in Cairo. Vein shnei makomos, shnei I live in Pustat. The king lives in Cairo. He says, about two Tchumei Shabbos, that's about a, about a mile's distance vali ala melakh minaka be ma'od i've got a, a a very difficult and weighty uh, custom with the uh, and a responsibility with the king e'efsherli mi'bilti rosh rosh ba'yom mitkha'as yam i can't see i can't see you um ani rove yomi be'samelekh i spend most of my day with the king e'efsherli um gamkane mi'bilti Okay, he writes this. Here's the general idea. You want to know what my day looks like? It looks like this. Every day I get up and I go to Cairo in the early morning. I stay there at least halfway through the day. I'm exhausted. I get home. I haven't eaten. I come home and my, my... Hall, whatever it is where I hang out, it's filled of non Jews. <laughs> Some of them are prominent people, plenty of them are not. <laughs> the judges and the police officers, a mixture of people, um, and they're waiting for me to return. What were they seeking? Medical advice. Medical advice. He gets home, he spends the whole morning with the king and taking care of the king's wives and kids and officers, I get home, and I got a room full of patients. <laughs> I get off my I get out of my car, The I wash my hands, I plead with them, give me a minute, so I can sorry, so I can just grab a quick snack, I'm going to eat a Cliff Bar, not even a proper meal, give me a minute. it's the first thing I've had in 24 hours to eat. The eight sailor, I then go and take care of them medically. I'll write them prescriptions. No one leaves until the evening. He, takes, he says, I swear, sometimes this, it's like two hours into the night before I'm, I'm free. I fall asleep sitting because I'm so exhausted. I'm so exhausted I can't even talk. He then says, I can't talk to any of the Jews, meaning I'm not acting as a rabbi. I am not, you know, in, you know I'm not helping out any of the Jewish people. The only time I have any interaction with, my, with any Jews in the city is on the Sabbath, It's on Shabbos. They come after davening, after the prayers. I give them some advice. Here's what you should do for the rest of the week. See me next Shabbos. <laughs> I read just a little bit, I'm so weak, until noon. That's his life. Uh, It's pretty clear when people say, oh, Rambam was a physician. That was not his main life's practice. He could not have been the prolific author that he was, an influential person. He himself writes, I have no interaction with the Jews because I'm so exhausted. So it seems that his medical practice only takes off, or he only engages in that towards the very end of his life. And he doesn't write about it so favoring, favoringly. I think he had to get into medicine because his brother again dies, so he had to earn a, a livelihood. The problem is, success was his own worst enemy. He becomes a successful doctor. The king hears about him and kind of presses him into service, and then he has to basically leave his rabbinic career. jerry has got a question. Rabbi, I'm chronologically confused. Yes, sir. Is a physician, yeah, or was he, a physician he was a, a rabbi? rabbi who becomes a physician. So, when he was depressed, he was a rabbi. He's so. still a rabbi there, yeah. So, rabbis are supposed to comfort people, he couldn't comfort himself. Yeah, even rabbis need rabbis. Yeah. Okay. That's, a, that's not a throwaway line, that's a very, very real thing. Rabbis need, I'm, 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 I mean, that very, very sincerely. Rabbis need rabbis. If you have a rabbi who doesn't have a rabbi, be very suspicious. So that's not the right word. Be very cautious. Rabbis, they absolutely need rabbis. And the Rambam, you know, he, he, and again, he was very open about the fact that he, he was really suffering. Rabbi, Matt, I yeah. have a question. Yes, ma'am. He said earlier that he writes prescriptions. Yeah. yeah. In those days, writing a prescription and taking it where? I don't know, there are some I don't know. I, I the C V S down the block. I don't know. Okay. So <laughs> I, I don't exactly know. I, it's a good question. So, yeah, they probably had it there there are people. Exactly. He was an expert on so you think, well, the Rambam, he's right. This is great. The Rambam is the chief physician of the king. Isn't that great? Professional success. Here's a letter what Rambam writes. What professional success. Be careful about professional success. This is a, write, a letter he writes to Rabbi Yosef. Um, and he writes the following Eloha Gedulos Vasaros shel When Jews rise to, to prominence, professional success. Atabazazman, today's day and age. In an etzli don't consider that be very careful saying well if a person is professionally successful be very wary saying oh that's great <laughs> this is not so good <laughs> <laughs> and the, the bad that could come with being a successful person it's not a small evil by the name of God he takes an oath <laughs> you want to know what success is is religious growth It's becoming a more spiritual person You know, and and this is something that I want to just flag for just a moment. People, the Rambam in today's day and age has been hijacked to some degree in some circles. And you talk about the Rambam, he's a physician, he was an influential person in 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 the government, and he was a leading figure of his time. Great, you know, that's what we should all lead our lives like. Rambam reluctantly became a doctor. That's not what he wanted to do. He had no choice. The fact that he was successful and was now a leading physician in, in, the, in the king deeply respected him, he viewed that as, as a very mixed blessing because it took him away from his ability to be religiously connected. Now, does that mean he says you should, no one should be, seek professional success? I'm not sure that's what he's saying, but I think what he is saying is, and, and it's important, don't pick paint Rambam as, well, he's a doctor. Rambam is not a doctor. Rambam is a rabbi. And all of his religious success became when that's when he was able to do full time. He had to become a physician. He was able, wasn't able to lose that balance. And he's arguing and inspiring us to recognize, you know, we all need professions. We all need jobs. And that's great. Our ichor, our primary focus should be spiritual success. Those are the words of Rambam, not me. <laughs> And he goes on and on on that theme, which is a, a beautiful idea. He writes a couple of other letters, which we're not going to go to. Some, prom- some well-documented letters are his Igeres Hateman, his letter to the Yemenite Jewish community. The Yemenite Jewish community at the time had been devastated by Islamic interference, <coughs> forced conversions. Um, they had to deal with uh, a false messiah. The, the community was devastated. And Rambam writes the Igeres Hateman, the epistle to the Yemenites, And it's very inspiring. He uplifts the community. Ramban, Rabbi Moshe Nachmanides, a generation and a half later, writes, he testifies, that the Yemenite Jewish community was so appreciative of how Rambam inspired them that in the text of their Kaddish, that they would say, you know, Yitzchadal, Yitzchadash, and the text of the Kaddish, they inserted a praise for Rambam's well-being how important and significant a character he was for the Yemenite community. He writes famously his Igeres Hashmad, his letter of... Shmad means forced conversions. There are many Jews, again, from Spain, and Cordova, and in the Islamic world, uh, in the Jewish community in the Islamic world, who had been, had to deal with first, forced conversions, which, in theory, in Judaism, if there's a forced conversion, you do have to give up your life. You should give up your life. Many ha- did not, and they were despondent. And are we now rejected? Are we you know, removed from the Jewish community? He writes to embrace them. No, you know. He welcomes them with open arms back into the Jewish community, and it's really a beautiful... A beautiful uh, letter. We only have a few minutes left, and I want to just quickly highlight some of the most significant... Those are his letters. That's how we know about Rambam as a person. His three most significant works that he wrote are what's his... Pirush HaMishnayas, which is his commentary to the Mishnah, which again, as I mentioned, was written in Arabic, translated by Ibn Teben. It's called Sefer HaMishnah. Pirush HaMishnayas. Pirush HaMishnayas. Now... It's a running commentary on all the Mishnas in, 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 uh, in, in the six orders of the Mishnah. However, there are three sections within this volume that have received... A lot of attention for their prominence. Number one is is haktama, His introduction, the Haktamas Harabim Lapirisha Mishnayis. His introduction to the Mishnah, where he really goes through what is the Torah Shabbal Peh. What is the oral tradition of the Torah? Where he talks about what does it mean to study the Torah. What is the Talmud? It's really remarkable. You can get English translations of those, which I have a couple over here. Here's an English translation of the Rambam's Purushim Ooh, can I just say one thing? This is a famous picture of the Rambam. Anyone ever see this portrait? If you go back in the good old days, the Israeli shekel used to have this engraved on the shekel. This is definitely... Definitely not what Rambam looked like. Okay, how do I know? Well, first of all, there's no there's no way a portrait survived 900 years. And Jews in the, in Arabic countries were not accustomed to having portraits painted of them. That's number one. But number two, dead giveaway, he doesn't have pais. If you recall, payas are the side locks. It's obligatory for Jewish males to leave the payas on. And again, some have the long dreadlocks, but at least something between that bone and that bone, you have to have it. The famous, most famous portrait of Rambam, it's like glaring. He has no opinion. It is not what the Rambam looked like. Trust Trust me. me. I guarantee you that. In any event, here's an English translation of the Hakdama, his introduction to the Pyrrhus Mishnahist. It's fantastic. He also wrote... By the way, that letter to Yemen and the discourse on martyrdom that Yeharus Ashman, here's an English translation of that. The another part, one of the sections of his of his uh, his Mishnah is his commentary on the Mishnah is his. It's called the Shmona Prokim, the eight chapters, which is his introduction to Tractate Avos to Pirke Avos, Ethics of the Father. He writes eight chapters that are absolutely remarkable and philosophical and. The third section, which has gained a lot of attention, I think I heard Rabbi Goldman talking about it this morning in their 9 o'clock class, class, which is Rambam's introduction to the 10th parak of Tractate Sanhedrin, where he writes a very long introduction where he famously outlines the 13 principles, what he argues are the 13 principles of Jewish faith. He, cause the, basically the, the structure is the beginning of that chapter begins everyone who is Jewish you have a portion in the world to come the Mishnah then continues and says here are those who don't have a portion in the world to come which kind of is a contradiction and I, I think that the, the, the typical understanding is as long as you identify self-identify as being Jewish you have a portion in the world to come which begs the question what does it mean to identify as a Jew? Rambam outlines thirteen principles of faith. Belief in these thirteen things means you believe. People call it the Rambam's creed, whatever you want to call it. These are the thirteen yud gimel ikram, the thirteen foundations of Judaism. Outline, but Rambam doesn't make these up. Rambam calls them from the Talmud. He argues these are immutable, you know, sequentially significant. 13 principles of faith. You may have heard them because they've been put there, and, and he goes into great detail what those 13 principles are. We recite them every Shabbos morning at the Kolel, at the explanatory service. The famous poem Yigdal, not composed by Rambams, composed much later, probably three, 400 years later. The Yigdal prayer is actually a poem. Each stanza is one of those 13 principles. Many Jews also have a tradition after morning prayers every day of reciting um, the 13 animamins. Anyone ever, ever hear animamin? Animamins, animamin means I believe, Mamin ben muna shalema. These are 13 declarations. I believe with perfect faith. You probably famously have heard Mamin ben muna shalema be ha Mashiach. One of the 13 principles is the idea of Mashiach. But these are, again, not written by Rambam. Someone else authored them, but they are based on the Rambam's 13 principles, which come from his pure Shamash is his commentary on the Mishnah. He writes that when he's in Fez, when he's in his 20s. His probably, his magnum opus is going to be the Mishnah Torah. The Mishnah Torah is, or sometimes called the Yad HaChazaka. Yad HaChazaka means the strong arm. Yad also numerically comes out to the number 14. And what it is, is Rambam, if you ever read, studied the Talmud, you'll know the Talmud does not give you bottom line answers. Notoriously so. Right? Every now and then, if you've studied the Talmud for more than 20 minutes, you will quickly learn that. And two things about the Talmud. It gives you no bottom line. It is the ultimate cliffhanger book. It doesn't tell you anything. It just says Rabbi A says this, Rabbi D says that, and Rabbi C says the other one. And what do I do, Rabbi? It doesn't tell you. Okay. Nor does it give you any explanation. What are they arguing about often? And thirdly... Although here's a, if you have never studied the Talmud, so I'm gonna break, I'm gonna burst a bubble for you, right? The Talmud has these tractates. There's tractate Shabbos, which right talks about all the laws of Shabbos are found where in tractate Shabbos, right? No, yeah. the Talmud is notorious for his. It's I, I, I don't want to sound like a heretic, it's, but it's not so organ. It's 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 very much a conversation, and when you have a conversation with someone, tangents emerge. And that's the structure of the Talmud. So it actually makes a lot of sense. It doesn't lend itself to perfect organization. If you want to study the laws of Shabbos, a good place to start is tractate Shabbos, but you're going to be missing a whole lot of information. So Rambam reorganized, he reorganized the Talmud into 14 very neat, tidy categories. He writes, he's really the first recodifier of Jewish law. When we talk about Jewish law nowadays, we typically talk about the code of Jewish law, the Shulchan Aruch. That is the second recodification. The first person to recodify and not follow the Talmud system of organization was Rambam in his Mishnah Torah. And boy, did he get heck for that. I will read... Probably the one, the, he was attacked by many including Raivid, Um Raivid 3 for those who are there are three rabbis in this time that are known as Rivid. this is Rivid number 3 and he writes HaMachaber Sover lasakin <laughs> Velo the author, meaning Rambam the author of this book thought he, may, he tried to improve the Jewish world and he, and he didn't help Rambam abandoned the ways of all the previous authors that came before him. The people who came before him would give proofs to their arguments. Rambam doesn't tell you where he got anything. He just tells you, here's the law. Well, how did you get that? Rambam doesn't tell you because it's just a codification. right? If you ever open up the Nevada Revised Statutes, it doesn't tell you why the law is the law. It just tell you, this is the law. Well, that was a new way of doing business. That's not how scholars used to write back then. And he goes on and on to blast the Rambam. Now, that's the Yad HaKazaka. Fascinating. The Rambam's Yad his or Mishnah Torah, Yad HaKazaka, it's the same thing, is studied Every yeshiva under the sun and every kolel, and I mean, you you study the Gemara, you study the Talmud, and one of the first things you're going to do is what's the Rambam have to say about it. Now, when you study the Rambam, you're going to find two things that come, what's really one thing that comes up in basically every topic on the Talmud that the Rambam discusses. You're going to find what's called a stira in the Rambam, a contradiction in the Rambam. Because the Rambam in section A says this, but in section B says that, and if you really think about it, it's in contradiction. What do we do? Was the Rambam crazy? Or even worse, you'll find the Talmud says the ruling is A, and the Rambam in his codification system says the ruling is B. Well, did the Rambam argue with, you can't argue with the Talmud. So Jews for the last 900 years have tried answering what's called stiras in the Rambam, resolving contradictions in the Rambam. Hold that thought for one second, because it's a remarkable thing. Again, the Rambam contradicts himself all the time, And he contradicts the Talmud all the time. And Jews for the last 900 years have done one thing. Prove that there really is no contradiction. The Rambam just had a novel way of understanding the Talmud. Or you have to really, you don't understand what the Rambam is saying in place A. You think he's saying A, but he's really not. He's saying B. And it's, it's unbelievable. That's what Jews have been doing the last 900 years. Rambam writes one other little teeny pamphlet. He writes a work called the Morah Hanavuchim, the Guide for the Perplexed. Which is very, very philosophical. And it directly quotes or utilizes Aristotelian philosophy. And boy, did the Rambam get in trouble for that. Because many, it's really, he he writes that in the last few years of his life. And after he dies, um, the Rambam is grilled by many of the rabbis. They're called the Chachme Provence. The rabbis live in Provence, which back then was not Spain. It kind of was its own little place. As well as many of the rabbis in Ashkenazic Jewry for... A lot of things. Number one, he got grilled for his use of, of philosophy and like he deviated from that's not that's new, that's not how we do do business and that and he got grilled for that. His Mishnah Torah got grilled for again reorganizing and not following the structure of the Talmud, and for B not explaining that he didn't show his work. Right? Think about it, like you do right, show your work. Rambam doesn't show his work. And he got grilled for it. And as a matter of fact, famously in the year twelve thirty two after his death, Rambam's books were burned because some people went ahead and they tattled on and they said this guy was a heretic he wasn't any good and the Christians got involved and he, his works were bur- burned the legend goes and I think it's pretty accurate or it's, it's pretty close to the truth one of the leading antagonists posthumously after the death of Rambam was a rabbi named Rabbeinu Yona Rabbeinu Yona of Grona who's one of, a, a, a very significant figure in Jewish history he was one of Rambam's antagonists after the burning of the books of the Rambam, about eight years later, in the same very spot where the Rambam's books were burnt, many editions of the Talmud were burnt. By Christians. By Christians. And Rabbeinu Yonah and many realized that they had gone too far. You want to disagree with Rambam, that's fine. Jews have disagreed with one another in a healthy, productive way for a long time. But this went too far, and the burning of the Talmud, back then, burning of the Talmud, again, no printing press. These things were handwritten. It was a tragedy. If Rambam's book, if the Talmud gets burnt, they interpreted this was this was a bad sign. The legend goes, and I think it's pretty true, is Rabbeinu Yona writes his famous work called Sharei Tshuva, the, the book of the book of repentance, and supposedly it was written as a way he realized what he did was wrong. As a way of repenting, as it were, for his antagonism, or I don't know if he felt that he was wrong in principle. That just it, it, things got a little taken too far, and uh, that, that's what he writes. It's interesting. You'll find they object to the Rambam for his use of philosophy, his his um, his disagree, his new organizational system, for his not showing work. Remember, I talked about what about all the contradictions in Rambam? They're like they're it's it's like you study the Rambam, like I don't get it. Like does this guy know what he's talking about? No one burned his books because of that. Why? Because everyone recognized, one thing that they didn't argue is that the Rambam knew what he was doing. In other words, the Rambam contradicts the Talmud. The Rambam is self-contradictory. It's not because he's a dope. They recognize there's some answer to it. In other words, if you want to know, I have Jews for the last 900 years been resolving contradictions, the Rambam is, you know, or maybe the Rambam was dumb. No one ever said that. The people who burned his books in his lifetime never said that. Rambam was a preeminent scholar, and very soon after that incident, I think the Rambam as a figure, it, for a little bit he was like perceived as not being part of the mainstream, but he was very quickly re-mainstreamed, and until today, in the last 900 years, Rambam is certainly considered a mainstream scholar, and I want to end with the following. If you ever go to D.C., that's where I'm from, so I'm going to recommend that you go to the, nat- the, the Natural History Museum. Okay. Anyone ever been there? Yes. The Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. Yes. Probably one of the most significant things on display at the nat- At the nat-, the nat. It's the most confusing name. It's the <laughs> National His- National Museum of Natural History. Say that ten times fast. The Natural <laughs> History Museum. If you go there, probably certainly the most valuable thing they have on display is. The Hope Diamond. Has anyone ever seen the Hope Diamond? You know the Hope Diamond? Incre- it's worth half a billion, a billion dollars. Incredibly valuable diamond. Yeah. The most remarkable thing about the Hope Diamond, first of all, its size, it's 42 carats, it's very big. But if you ever look at it, you know what the first thing that jumps out at you? It's blue. It's this unique, I don't know anything about diamonds, but it's apparently an incredibly unique color. This deep, radiant blue. Diamonds aren't supposed to be blue. Why is the Hope Diamond blue? They're all They're colors. They're Different colors, but this deep gray blue, very unusual. Why is it Why is it blue? What gives it its blue? So scientists recently did a, I don't know how they do these things, but they determined for every million carbon atoms that make up the diamond, there is somewhere between one and eight uh, atoms of boron that are trapped within that network Of carbon. Think about that for a second. You're one poor boron atom. (laughs) What kind of difference can you make in the world? There are a million other people just like you. There are a million other carbon atoms. You're nobody, you Mr. Boron (laughs) atom. Guess what? You put one boron atom together with a million other carbon atoms. You You transform the hope diamond into a deep blue powerful analogy and metaphor we call the koach hayachid, the power of an individual. Right? Who am I? I'm one in a million. Yeah, you know what one in a million does? It makes the hope diamond. Delete Rambam from the history of the Jewish people. We don't look the same. We don't look anything close to being the same. The most significant, impactful people in the history of the Jewish, the Jewish people. If not for anything, reading and getting inspired by the life and times of the Rambam it shows you what an individual, one person can do. One person changed the entire trajectory and history of the Jewish people. I don't know if anyone in this room is going to be a Rambam in the sense that we're going to change the trajectory of the Jewish people, but don't for a second think that I'm not important that I don't have any significance and I can't make a difference. One little boron atom can change the hope of a diamond. One person, one Rambam changed the trajectory of the Jewish people. Let's all take that inspiration, study the works of the Rambam, let's emulate the Rambam and recognize one person can make a huge, huge difference in the history of the Jewish people. Thank you all for coming. Have more coffee. I'm going to stick around for questions because I see many. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.